welcome to a special bonus episode of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward. Instead of our usual look at the month's queer news and culture, today we're going to be devoting a whole hour to The Inheritance, a two-part play by Matthew Lopez that won like all the awards in a recent run in London and is currently dominating discussions on Broadway. I'm going to say it up front, in this conversation there will be spoilers, so stop listening if you don't want them. Uh, While its length, ambition, and engagement with the AIDS crisis have invited comparisons to Tony Kushner's Angels in America, the inheritance's driving concern is a bit more contained, if no less daunting. I'm going to try to put it this way. If gay men think of ourselves as a community spanning generations, what happens when a huge swath of that community is lost to plague, the survivors deeply traumatized, and younger cohorts must therefore come of age and figure out what it means to be gay in the wake of a tragedy that shapes everything around us, but that many of us may not fully understand? Uh, Borrowing a line from E.M. Forster's Howard's End, on which the play is based, the inheritance desperately wants gay men to connect across age and loss— But is that kind of connection really possible? It's a big question. Uh, But before we dive in, I'd like to introduce our esteemed panel, who have graciously agreed to join us in the studio today for Inheritance Chatter, even after sitting through seven hours of theater. (laughs) Uh, First up, we've got Alex Barash, a Slate alum and member of the New Yorker's editorial staff and writer on culture, science, and LGBTQ issues. Hey, Alex. Hey, excited to be here. Uh, given that this is a panel on gay intergenerationality to some degree, I'm going to ask you a rude question. How old are you? I'm 23, which I think makes me the, the gay youth correspondent of the panel. Excellent. I <laughs> uh, love ha- loving have a, having that in the room. Uh, we have Carlos Maza, a media critic, creator of Vox's Strike Through series, and member of this year's Fancy Out 100 class. <laughs> Welcome, Carlos. Thanks for having me. Uh, and how old are you? 31. 31. <laughs> I should say I'm 32, so that puts me in the middle. Alex, if you die, I'm taking over your spot. (laughs) (laughs) In the course of the podcast, yeah. (laughs) We could be here a while. (laughs) And last but not least, we have David Groff, a poet, independent book editor, and adjunct professor in the MFA program at City College of New York. Thanks for coming, David. Thank you. And may I ask, how old are you? Uh, 62. 62. Excellent. Okay, so here's where I'm going to try to give a quick synopsis of this play for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, which is hard because it is so long. Fortunately, uh, the theater critic Isaac Butler just published a critique of the show for Slate, which we'll link to on our show page. So I'm going to just crib that paragraph from his, honestly. The Inheritance is the story of Eric Glass, a middle-class New York Jewish intellectual in his early 30s. He lives with his partner, Toby, who has fled a traumatic past by tacking on a veneer of cultured urbanity. They are friends with a wealthy older gay couple, Henry Wilcox and Walter Poole, and they befriend a young gay actor named Adam. This pleasant configuration is eventually rocked by Eric finding out that he will be evicted from his beautiful uh, rent-controlled apartment. Toby finding unexpected success as a playwright, and Walter's sudden death from hidden, a hidden cancer. If you know Howard's End, Eric is Margaret, Toby is Helen, Walter is Ruth Wilcox, Henry is Henry Wilcox, and Adam splits uh, between being Leonard Bast and another character, a sex worker and poet who looks exactly like him, named Leo. The class divides of the novel become generational divides in the play, as three generations of gay men try to navigate the world and each other. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, earlier, I tried to define what the play is about, uh, roughly gay intergenerational trauma, struggle for gay men to connect across it. Um, 
how do you experience that question or issue in your own lives? Um, do you think the play does it justice? I mean, it, this was interesting to me because it is a question that I have grappled with a lot in my own life. And I think like Lopez, I sort of came to it initially through these sort of literary forefathers. Like he has this profound connection to Forster, which I think is part of why he wanted to create a play that was based on Howard's End. Mm -hmm. But, you know, reading Forster, reading Wilde, reading Baldwin, that was all important to my sort of coming of age and coming to understand my cultural inheritance such as it is. But I don't know that many gay men who are substantially older than me, Mm -hmm. and I would like to. So I think that that is uh, a thing that I have contended with in my life, but I don't know that the play uh, necessarily presents any easy answers on that front Mm -hmm. or uh, action points if you are someone who is seeking those connections. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I I definitely have grown up with flashes of the feeling that um, my generation was the first generation to be creating gay culture, this like flawed idea that history began with me mm. and have learned as I've gotten older um, to obviously think more critically about it and be aware of sort of the gap behind me and that it's not because of a lack of people, but a lack of surviving people. Um, that being said, I struggled with the play tremendously because it seemed very intent on saying something about that divide. Mm. And I don't know what it said beyond there is a divide and also Mm. isn't it strange that we inherit trauma and I think both of those are wild true and important I just don't know um how the play made me feel differently about them or or feel a way that I wouldn't feel just from being a a queer person that moves through the world um, and and reads Mm. (laughs) Mm. well I think having come out and come of age at exactly the moment when AIDS and HIV was um, infecting people and infecting my entire view of sexuality, mm-hmm. of surviving, of, uh, and of culture, um, I've always felt that I was denied an entire generation of mentors. All those people who are going to tell me how to be in a long-term relationship, how to navigate sex, how to create culture, all of them were either preoccupied, dead, ultimately, or traumatized. So as more increasingly, I've been defining myself as a, an HIV survivor. Mm. Um, I have an HIV positive husband. I've certainly been, you know, have lost so many. I have an entire long list. And I think a lot of us across generations are essentially survivors of the HIV era, however we um, d- have defined ourselves, or even across um, our ages. So for me, not having had those mentors, those guides, I've wanted even more to try to be a mentor, mm. to try to kind of connect um, across the generational divide um, and to figure out what it is that actually does unite us. There are a hell of a lot of people out there who are 27 and who have HIV. Mm-hmm. There are other who are functioning not without necessarily the larger kind of context. And even some of the questions we've been struggling with about what it actually means to be a queer person, what use there is in that in the culture, is something I think that uh, it's a conversation I think we can resume over generational and class lines as well. Mm. And I try to be part of that. Yeah. It's interesting that I think uh, both Alex and Carlos sort of pointed to the fact that the play brings up this question or seems you know preoccupied with this this sort of huge issue but then maybe doesn't get us anywhere with it is that fair to say like like I cuz I felt that way too I think I think it it is I was so excited by the idea of seeing a play grapple with this because I'll answer the, the question myself. Like in my own life, I am lucky enough to have um, sort of intergenerational gay friendships. Uh, I, in fact, two of my best friends are in their late 60s. 
And that has been so valuable to me as as a young younger gay man. Um, not so much because they're like mentors, like because I don't know that friendships work quite that way, mm-hmm. but because I just get to see them living. Right? They've been in a relationship for thirty six years, I think. Um, they have this home together that I've been invited into many many times. You know, I, so so seeing how they have lived, um, seeing how the epidemic impacted them, how they do talk about it, how they don't talk about it. Um, all of that has been really instructive and valuable. And so I was, I was sort of, I feel like perhaps the ideal audience for this play, mm-hmm. just because I'm, I am also preoccupied with the question, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that it um, left me with any new insight into that other than just like, as you said, Carlos, like, yes, trauma, <laughs> trauma is inherited <laughs> and it happens. Um and I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that means if maybe there were other audience members for whom it was all new. And so that that will mean something. I'm, I'm not sure if we're being unfair. I, I don't know. I mean, my frustration is that the so the play is primarily preoccupied with this idea of, of inheritance, but the way that it grapples with it or the way that it talks about what queer men inherit, it felt to me so disjointed. Like there's a, a portion of the story that deals with um, the way that you carry trauma from your childhood as a queer person into adulthood like the whole toby darling story is about that kind of trauma uh there's a separate idea of inheritance like the actual physical inheritance of things that gay men pass on to each other um whether it be the house or in a lot of cases hiv is an inheritance and then there's the inheritance of um just like collective trauma the way that gay men understand that kind of thing and those are all interesting ways of talking about the way that trauma is passed on but there isn't at least I struggled afterwards to find a through line, a way that all those stories are connected. I, I can't imagine how the experience of being, or at least I, I should say, I can't see how the play comments on the experience of being traumatized as a young queer person and how that is meaningfully tied to the AIDS crisis or the way that those stories of inheritance are linked. And I think there is an argument to be made about how those things are tied, um, but it just feels like there was this intention to bring up inheritance whenever possible, and it's so disjointed <laughs> that it's difficult to come up with a thesis. Like, it, what what does you what do you end up saying about inheritance? Um, I think you struggle with because there are these stories that feel so specific and particular that they're not meaningfully attached to the broader um, story about HIV. The the Toby Darling story feels like very specific to a to personal trauma mm-hmm. um, and the personal experience of being queer in isolation. Um, that doesn't feel meaningfully connected to this like larger, very moving story about the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. It, it may be worth talking about how old Lopez is because he's 42 yeah. and uh, Rebecca Mead wrote what I thought was a very revealing profile of him in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And he has this quote that uh, something that he said to her about his age and how that informed his understanding of trauma. And he describes it as learned trauma in his generation. He says, though we did not live through the epidemic, we saw it happening as kids, as teenagers, when we were learning that we were gay and knowing that our sex lives could kill us. Mm-hmm. So he is in this sort of interesting in-between space where he's not necessarily directly impacted, but he's not at such a remove that this is just a void. Like he can actually see it happening in real time and is sort of internalizing that. And that feels very bound up in his understanding of himself and of his identity. And I wonder whether it's worth sort of thinking about the play in those terms and wondering how that may have impacted his understanding of both that sort of individual story of being, you know, he also grew up as a young gay man in the South who was bullied for that. Mm -hmm. So he has the sort of Toby Darling narrative, and I think he identifies quite heavily with him, but he also has this sort of larger sense of what was going on in the community, and that was the lesson that he took away from it. But 
Yeah, the play the play does seem a bit split in what it wants to attend to between those two things. That's right. that's helpful because I, I feel like there is there are these sort of personal stories that I would have I think would have been more effective if we'd heard more of them. But mm. then the play there are these whole often I think sort of dinner party or brunch scenes that become like billboard signs about like what gay culture is and right. where we are and all of that. Boys in the band with issues. Boys <laughs> in the band with I love that. Yeah. Boys in the band with issues. Totally. Um well, I one thing that struck me is that um for a play that's supposed to deal with HIV, HIV itself and characters with HIV are almost completely absent from the play. Mm-hmm. We have uh two that I know of who are mentioned one, I think, quite powerfully, a gay black doctor who has one of the most powerful scenes in the play as he's confronting HIV and what it means to be an American in the age of Trump. And mm-hmm. I actually wanted much more of the play to be about him. Yeah. And then we have another character whose HIV status is basically mentioned, but any of the issues that that person is confronting as a young person with HIV are completely kind of uh, gestured at and then not really followed through on. Mm-hmm. I think the play has... Um, Missed a couple creative opportunities to to bring HIV to the fore, including in one of its pivotal older characters who is sick with something that is not HIV. Mm-hmm, and right. had that character been someone who was indeed dying of HIV, as people still do, HIV ages you rapidly. Mm. People who are in their fifties now and sixties are are having incredible kidney issues, mm-hmm. even if they have no viral load. And so there are ways I think the play could have stepped forward in dramatic terms to really. Um, um, engage those issues, and I kind of wish it had more. That became ghostly, uh, yeah. literally in some cases. No, I completely agree, and I feel that that was one of the central sort of dramatic problems of the play, that all of this history and culture is happening at a remove. You know, we're being told about it 20 years down the line, and they mention in passing, oh, you know, men of color are still contending with this epidemic in a real way, or, you know, working class men are still... Uh, contending with the epidemic in a real way. But we don't really see those people. They're sort of pushed to the sidelines deliberately. So it was odd to me that we hear about these things as a kind of oral history at a remove, but we don't see those characters brought to the fore. And I agree that that would have made for a much more compelling and sort of dramatically powerful. I I feel uh, that. There's one moment in the second half of the play where the only woman character comes on stage and delivers an extremely long monologue mm-hmm. that basically is encapsulates um, the uh, uh, love and guilt around caring for people with HIV. And to me, it was the most depressing part of the entire play because I began hearing that same person telling that same story in 1983. Mm -hmm. And somehow for this to have to be delivered and kind of shoved into the play, however beautifully it's presented, um, it was a reminder of how little we've remembered. And at that point in the play, um, evidence of how little we've seen that actually enacted in this story. There are chunks of the play that where it felt like the cast was trying to directly speak to the audience about something happening or it was it was artificially expository. And those parts of the play always felt the most agonizing to me that it came up largely around the dinner table scenes where the gay men were all hanging together and speaking in ways that gay men on no planet would ever talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Just very obviously aware of an audience. And, and like uh, think pieces. Yeah. Like speaking in yeah. Like, it yeah. just it, it felt as like a diehard social justice warrior like it was attempting to appease me in a way that made me mm. it just brought me out of the moment and the, i yeah. thought the strongest parts of the play were moments where it showed the experience of living as a queer person and one of those things that you don't one of the parts of that is you don't often sit around a dinner table talking about the particularities of living with as a queer person to other queer people who 
intuitively right. know it. And right. so you either ha- have a piece that's trying to lecture a straight audience about things about queer people or a piece about queer people just being themselves around each other where you would never have to give that lecture. And it always, there's like this en- entire attempt to grapple with the current political moment that felt false to me, mm. both in the way that it was addressing it explicitly in a way that like queer people under Trump would never <laughs> sit around the table and say, have you heard of this Trump guy? Like having that kind of direct <laughs> discussion about politics. Um, and that felt like it was for, it was trying to prove something to an audience that, um, I thought, I thought the place was successful part to when it wasn't trying to explain anything to the audience. We're just yeah. kind of assumed that you understood and knew what was going on. So there are a few threads uh, that y'all just brought up that I'd like to pull on. I think the first one is about the way that sort of whiteness and I guess wealth, you could say, are like centered in the play and how we have all of these other characters of color uh, on the sidelines, literally, like the way the play is staged. um, It's sort of a big platform and everyone who is not currently sort of in the action for the most part is is sort of seated around, sometimes commenting, but like a chorus, but, but there and only popping up right from time to time to make these sort of like woke points that feel stapled in. And Alex, I feel like you had something to say to like that effect, like about how it uh, writing those characters that way, like let them, be just totally cardboard and like empty. Yeah, I mean, I I did often feel, particularly with those side characters, but also even with the main characters, that people might just switch sides in a debate mm. because that's what the scene calls for, as opposed to that being a thing that that character might actually believe. Or almost or... like someone gave like an editor's note, like, oh, you need to mention, like, I feel like there was this like, but like trans women of color are the people who are most at risk, right? Right. Like, the, it just felt like it of... dropped in from like a... a, a piece somewhere right there is this box ticking exercise that's being done and i'm i'm conflicted about this because on the one hand there are white gays in new york who Mm. only associate with other white gays and those people might be having these kinds of insular conversations but the thing that felt disingenuous was for them to then say Mm. oh but let us not forget our trans (laughs) siblings of color because you know that those social groups exist but those are not the conversations that they're having so that sort Mm. of dissonance was uh frustrating to me i think one of the things that irked me the most that scene with with tristan where he talks about living under trump as a black doctor Mm -hmm. it was moving but there was also part of me that thought that there was an attempt to parallel or unite the like queer experience of living with hiv aids or living past that crisis with the modern experience of living under trump and anytime trump got mentioned there was this attempt to i feel like at least suggest that something about history is circular this is a pattern or that we're living through another version of that era that felt I, I as a queer person feel like that isn't a particularly accurate description. These things don't feel analogous, but if you want to make the argument, I feel like a lot of work needs to be done to explain how homophobia or anxiety about difference that existed during the HIV AIDS crisis is similar to the beasts that we're living under now. And especially when it came to race, they just feel like different beasts. Like it, it is useful to talk about the way that, oppression is systemic and the way that these things sort of manifest over time or the way that we don't see bigotry coming in elections. But what's happening to a black character in this show under Trump feels like categorically different to what's mm-hmm. happening to a relatively well-off wealthy gay character. And uh, I felt like if there was going to be an attempt to incorporate that, um, there should be a lot more legwork being done to explain what it is that is that is analogous about those things or the way that that at least like cultural trauma is similar in those ways that it didn't feel like it was there. And to me, it felt like it cheapened or kind of footnoted the very real experience of being a person of color under the Trump era. Um, 
in a way that felt uh, like it did a disservice to the, the non-white characters in the show. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that a lot. And I think that leads us back actually to the play's connection with Angels in America, which did have, was, you know, written, takes place in the 80s, came out in the, in the mid-90s and had an entire superstructure of essentially Reaganism and mm-hmm. Roy Cohnism and characters who were truly embedded in that, mm-hmm. who were Trumpian. In, you know, in their way. And that, that to me spoke a lot to the trauma that I experienced in that era of, of, of being completely estranged from power. Um, and certainly as a white man, I felt that. And it was even more felt by other people and ACT UP who were people of color or women. And I think in some of, it, some of the ways that Matthew Lopez was working was to kind of bring that in. But the Trump character, the Trump supporting character in this kind of gets off easy. And again, it felt kind of Mm. gestural. You know, Tristan had been there throughout grappling with something, trying to get aid for his patients in, you know, at Mount Sinai Hospital's public clinic or something. I think we would have felt those issues more organically. Yeah, I think there's also a, there is a real parallel between sort of the the disappearing of a generation due to the AIDS crisis and the disappearing of mentors due to mass incarceration or to, due yes. to a mass deportation. Uh-huh. There is like a, a parallel to make there. But it's so far, it's it's just that gay people kind of universally experience the loss of our elders because of, of AIDS. And that feels, if I was a, a black character in the show called The Inheritance, I feel like I would need to talk about the way that sort of black mentors are evaporated in the community. Yeah. I mean, it has nothing to do with the, with the central struggle that the show um, grapples with. Yeah. I mean, the, there's one scene at the end of part one that I personally found very moving, but I'd be curious to hear what other people made of it, where um, Eric, the main character, goes to this house for the first time, and it's the house where Walter, one of the older gay men he's befriended, had sort of nursed men through the AIDS crisis and he had taken them to this house upstate in their final days and like shown them the tenderness that they had been denied by this system that hated them essentially Mm -hmm. and when he arrives at the house for the first time these men come on stage and you've there have been men surrounding the stage throughout the whole first part and throughout the play in general but it's fairly sparse and then to see all of these other men sort of fill in those gaps so that it's just teeming with life suddenly and you realize that these are the people who've been lost I found that incredibly powerful, and I also thought it was interesting that that group of men who arrive are like more diverse than the rest of the ca- like, the rest <laughs> of the cast by a long shot. Yeah. And I wondered whether that was a deliberate choice, the idea that these are men who were lost in the epidemic, and the men who can afford to be in New York in 2019 look very different and you know are primarily white and primarily well-off, and they're mm. the ones who got to survive and continue this gay legacy such as it is but i don't know if i'm sort of giving him too much credit or maybe this was doldry's invention and not lopez's but i thought that was interesting yeah i i i like that interpretation the part that that i've struggled with trying to read into the show is that there are some parts of the show that are so explicit and in your face in a way that that takes you out of the moment Mm -hmm. that i'm like not generous about trying to read into meaning if the show was trying to tell you something it would more than likely have a black character stand slightly off stage and deliver that <laughs> directly yeah, to the audience yeah. Very true. i'm less yeah. generous than i otherwise would be though i will say um there there is that scene where there's this fight between henry who ends up being this like trump supporting a uh, gay character and jasper who's like the more um revolutionary younger character mm-hmm. and i think you're right that the the show lets the trump supporter off so so much more kindly than it than it makes sense to me because the the central tension between them is Jasper says as a gay man basically how can you be complicit in in a system that 
engenders more oppression. And Henry's defense is, I've lived through the crisis, the AIDS crisis. So essentially, you don't get to tell me about what pain feels like or what trauma feels like. And I feel like for any gay person that's been out for more than a few years, you've you've heard that argument and are very tired of it. And it mm. feels very like freshman intro to sociology course who are like, okay, I've, I've met those people and I stopped hanging out with them. <laughs> so it's just not a particularly nuanced view on, on how this works. And the fight ends with Jasper, the younger one, essentially becoming very rude and becoming incivil. And the other character is saying, Jasper, you've gone too far. Mm-hmm. And the Trump supporting character kind of being ushered off stage. And that's the end of it. And for a show that attempts so hard to be woke, like <laughs> a collapsing into civility politics at the end of that dispute feels so, <laughs> so off. And uh, it ended up, my view was it was that it was much nicer to the Trump character than well, it needed to be. I agree. Do you right. think that Lopez was doing that thing that I think um, good art sometimes try to do, which is to make us empathize with a character that we would otherwise see as like a villain? And I wonder, a friend of mine actually in a conversation about this theorize that maybe what happened between the London uh, production of this and and the New York one is that we went through, you know, what, three years of or so of, of the Trump administration. So, like, when that scene is being written or, like, worked through in 2016, 2017, like, are we, is there more... Um, allowance for trying to understand like why someone would support Trump and so Henry Wilcox then makes a little bit more sense like in that frame and now it's aged badly and so we can't like just have no patience for that anymore I don't know I mean this is strange it's strange that the play seems to want us to be nice to this guy like yeah and I mean in in Howard's End itself I also hate that Henry Wilcox but he is he is again this sort of capitalist who has no mm-hmm. conscience and they describe uh, Forster describes him as having the business mind and the great asset that he has is that he only lives within this 10 minute span he has the five minutes previous and the five minutes to come he mm-hmm. doesn't think about consequences he doesn't think about accountability if he ruins someone's life he's already forgotten about it by the time that mm-hmm. that comes to pass so he just absolves himself of everything mm-hmm. so I I wonder whether we are supposed to interpret that as this Henry's central flaw as well, that he has this short memory and this selfishness that makes him capable of being a billionaire who supports Trump and totally divorcing himself from his community. And, you know, throughout he's being implored to connect and he refuses to engage with the trauma that he went through mm-hmm. and the trauma that his community went through. You know, he is... Walter's partner, mm-hmm. uh, the man who nursed all of these other gay men through the AIDS crisis, and that like destroys their relationship. The idea that Walter would bring the this disease into their home is right. you know something that uh, fractures their partnership beyond repair. So it seems like he is just incapable of connecting and has this sort of profound isolation from culture and from trauma as like a protective, selfish measure. Mm. But I I don't feel that the play digs into that enough to make it okay. Like I I just ultimately, I mean, I don't want to just endlessly compare it to angels in America, but if you look at someone like Roy Cohn in that play, he is a horrific figure and Kushner knows that and doesn't shy away from that. And he is able perhaps to make him empathetic in his final moments, but that doesn't, that doesn't negate the terrible things that he has done to other members of the community and to, other, you know, marginalized individuals throughout his career. So I feel like Lopez needed to do a lot more work to strike the same balance, and I don't think he really got there. Mm. 
Well, the play so often short circuits all of those emotional connections between one character and another. Mm. Um, Henry certainly with Eric, who's who's our kind of like Lewis Ironson from Angels in America, but without any characteristics. <laughs> um, and uh, and Toby's sort of a Stephen Spinella, Prior Walter kind of sorta. Mm-hmm. But again and again, in in all of those primary relationships, things keep happening. Like you know, the rich, gorgeous young actor that that Toby falls for is kind of a thing and you think there's going to be this great dynamic around triangularity in their relationship and that disappears mm-hmm. and then we have the world's least effective hustler <laughs> on Christmas Eve unable yeah. to say anything unable even it seems to get on you know rentboy.com right and that too becomes a whole story that Henry sort of interacts with briefly mm-hmm. but and we're supposed to kind of weigh so much uh, on that since it, these are the surviving characters but that doesn't happen either the place seem to be splaying in so many different directions mm, that yeah. all of those moments, including the incredibly long um, final scene for one of our heroes, you just, by the end, you just want him to get on the throughway. <laughs> right, you know? right. Because um, you know it's coming, right? Yeah. yeah there's just <laughs> and, no way. Yeah. And that to me, I just, I wish so much that, that all of these characters had been kind of locked in a room, as it were, to work this out. Mm. And the play c- keeps diffusing that and then diffusing the issues around those dynamics. I think it would be good to talk about Leo, the the sex worker that you mentioned, uh, young sex worker that you mentioned for a moment, um, because I found that character particularly frustrating as a kind of stand-in, I think, for for like the youths um, and like what the youths know or don't know. I mean, there is, you know, he as we say, he's a sex worker. He's been doing this in New York, it seems like, for a number of years when we meet him. And then in the final, this final sort of scene, um, the the mother character um, says, you know, there was a plague, I'm, this is paraphrasing, but, you know, there was a plague, young man, like, have you heard of it? And he's like, no, not really. And it's like, wait, and oh, and by this time, he's also been diagnosed with HIV himself. Um, but it's as if he's never, like, heard of the AIDS crisis, which doesn't make any sense, like just characterization wise. But then it makes me wonder, like, why does the play or why does Lopez like think that young queer people, gay people are so um, unknowledgeable or just like disconnected? And do we I guess maybe a bigger question is like, do we think that's true? So maybe youth correspondent, <laughs> is it true that like that no one's ever heard of the AIDS crisis um, or or not? And then I don't know. It, it just I found that very strange and frustrating. I don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I can confirm I have heard of the AIDS crisis. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> rest assured. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is tricky. I don't know that Leo is supposed to stand in for like all gay youth. He seems okay. to be a fairly remarkable case, uh, but. He's also a huge reader, right? He's right. Like super yeah. intelligent. Yeah, but he, al- he, I think he also comes to that fairly late. Like it, that happens in the course of the play, which yeah. I found interesting. That the one of the other sort of of the many inheritances that come up, one of them is this cultural inheritance. And when he first yeah. meets Toby, uh, Toby takes him to the Strand and sort of buys all of these books for him and decides that he's going to be the one to mentor this young man, despite being you know five years older than him or whatever. But it's <laughs> like it's this idea of bequeathing that history and that culture to the people who come after you. And I think that there is something real there and there is, you know, history that we're not taught in school and that has been actively repressed and that you do need to seek out actively and come to it yourself. And it does help to have someone to be your entree into that world. Mm -hmm. But the idea that he would not have heard of the AIDS crisis when he is so embedded in that culture already and, as you say, has already read many books (laughs) seems uh, to stretch 
credulity. I mean, again, it's the sort of situation of the character knowing or believing what they need to know for In the purposes that of that scene mm-hmm. to launch the expository monologue about the crisis. But. Yeah. I, I, I challenge that a little bit, I guess, uh, speaking as the old person here, <laughs> um, because originally one got HIV without knowing how or why. Mm-hmm. And then safe sex really did change that. The condom code changed that. Yeah. And then in the in the 90s, people got it out of, if you already were in the world one way or another in your 20s or 30s, you got it because you were exhausted or depressed, mm-hmm. or if you were you know using alcohol or, or drugs, which mm-hmm. almost everyone I know is so converted in the 90s did it as a result of substance use one way or another. Mm. But what I'm seeing now among my students, among the people I teach, is a real ignorance of some of the basics mm. that I think PrEP has changed somewhat. Mm-hmm. But, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, stuff like that. I know I've had students who grow up outside New York City and really have no clue about AIDS and HIV right. or how to protect themselves. Yeah. Right. And I, so I do think there's class stuff in here and access material and a lack of history which I find whenever I try to teach something HIV-related, you know, there is no context at all for, for the texts that some of us of, of different ages, but with some education, hmm. may find that are just not on their radar at all. Yeah. Whether Leo fits into that is another question. Yeah. I mean, in terms of class, I would certainly say that he is someone who wouldn't necessarily have had the resources to acquire that knowledge on his own terms or to even know where to look. So I can mm. certainly see that. But yeah, mm. it is interesting. I would say that I agree that he's a stand-in for class, and it, it made it kind of uncomfortable to see Leo introduced primarily through this monologue about how we don't care about the poor and and we think of them as as dumb or expendable. And then Leo as a character, I would say for the first eighty percent of his time in the play, is a character that is primarily acted upon and does mm-hmm. not exert any kind mm-hmm. of agency. And and uh, it isn't my experience, but I can imagine watching that from the perspective of somebody who is from that background and feeling incredibly uh, disserviced by the way that Leo like barely even speaks. I mean, if you're a, if you're doing the work that he's doing in New York, you must have an incredible amount of like resilience and street smarts and just general nobility about the world. And he is depicted for the most part as a character that has no ability to fend for himself or speak for himself and is primarily taken advantage of by um, the richer members of, of the cast. And I don't know, I think there's something to say about, the way that inheritance, um, even in, in the best sense for gay people, is primarily communicated through uh, cultural signifiers that are not accessible to poorer people. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is like sort of a gap for gay culture that isn't um, affiliated with with wealth or New York uh, or upper class New York. But he's the way that he's played is more of a critique of the poor than it is a critique of gay culture. That it's seen mm-hmm. as that he's missing out on this thing, and that the gay characters who are kind enough to be um, benevolent towards him and, and give him these gifts are allotted, but there isn't really a, an investigation of class as is in the show. So, like, on the subject of sex, actually, or sex work, um, I found this play to be strangely conservative in its view of of sex itself and sort of sexuality. Um, you know, Eric and Toby, the main couple, do this really goofy choreography um, in a sex scene instead of, you know, miming fucking in some way. Um, all the sexually promiscuous characters are punished in one way or another. Um, and and uh, with Leo, it's even weirder because he's on prep, but somehow contracts HIV and that's not really explained, which I think is sort of a disservice to 
the world um, <laughs> because that's you know it's important to understand how that might happen if it does. Um, you know, the sexually liberated culture of places like Fire Island is portrayed as this like meth soaked like hellscape, which maybe some of it is, but you know, just I've a, been there. Just a tea. Just a, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's you know sh- sh- that could happen, but it's also there are lovely parts of of that kind of gay culture too, right? And so, and at the end, all of the sort of good quote unquote characters end up marrying and dying old <laughs> um, <laughs> in a very sort of like bourgeois like style. Um, what did y'all make of this? Like, it, it was a strange undercurrent, I feel like. And I actually, I saw the play with Carlos, and I feel like you brought up Larry Kramer's Faggots mm-hmm. um, when we were talking about this a little bit. So if, if you want to... Yeah, I should say my feelings about the way the play treats sex are kind of mixed because there are these moments of incredible greatness, I think, in the way the play talks about sex. There are a couple of monologues in particular where um, the, the character Adam talks about going to a bathhouse in Germany, I think, mm-hmm. and and being adored by all these men and feeling he he describes it as being sanctified, that he feels like he's um, a saintly figure. Like anointed. Yeah, anointed yeah. because he's, he's like anointing people with his sex. And, you know, there are parts of that that I felt like this is a kind of an honest description of sort of the highs of gay, queer liberation, like the way that we feel about sex being more than a means to an end, that's very beautiful. Mm. And then that monologue is like immediately followed with this horrific description of of the fear of becoming sick or, or being physically hurt. And then also there's part of the Fire Island scene where Leo, who's played by the same actor, is giving the speech about the way that the sex, the physical touch he's getting from Toby, who's like up to this point not a very emotionally and, and like warm character, mm. feels like love. And he describes mm-hmm. sex feeling loving in that way, even when it's like sort of the gratuitous Fire Island sex that also felt to me as a gay audience member like I've never really seen sex portrayed as as a high like that as a way that's so kind of generous and um, it just felt very progressive and then again immediately followed with now it's fueled by meth and this is a huge disaster and so uh, it's very confusing because of those parts in in isolation as a queer person felt like the most honest description of what sex is like and why you know, gay sex or sort of that culture that straight people might perceive has some like generally, genuinely virtuous and like sort of transcending qualities. And so it felt very frustrating to have that immediately followed up with this depiction of sex as, um, as dangerous yeah. or, or sloppy. And the characters that are sexless throughout most of the play, I, th- I think Eric being the main one, near the end of the play, it's like literally dressing like Jesus. And it's like taking <laughs> his place at the center of the Last Supper table. Like just just so... There's something about it that just does feel very conservative. And my feeling about it after the play was like, is the play a type of trauma that we're inheriting? Like, is this <laughs> approach to sex a kind of trauma on the part of the author that we should just look at from a critical distance and say, yeah, we inherited this from someone. We still haven't grown out of our fears and anxieties about sex. Um, I was, well, I, I was a two minds of it throughout the entire show. The whole play, I think, is kind of a progression toward desexualization. Mm. You know, we have, I actually kind of like the fun, funky, bottom top dance they did yeah. in the beginning. And Eric is presented at this voracious bottom. Yes, but, that's um, true. Yeah. Sex, you know, is either incredibly problematic or it disappears, particularly when we get to the idol of the inherited house. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Henry, when he hooks up with our hero, Henry the Trumpy guy, um, they never have sex no, with each other. No, never. 
whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and Eric has been presented as this guy who was like, you know, take me, take me. And he seems to be making a real non-sexual bargain for wealth and security now mm-hmm. that he's lost his $575 a month two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> right. And, and then the, and, his, and the entire kind of of um, idol that's presented at the end of Henry of Eric being 35 until 97 absolutely seems you know sex free yeah. and once again we have this play that glorifies uh, gay life and has more gay stuff in it than maybe anything uh, that we've seen on Broadway and yet uh, degays itself you know yeah. um, mm. throughout the whole thing almost systematically mm-hmm. you know sacrificing sex or or making it or terrorizing, terrorizing us around it, it. Yeah. Yeah. until I mean, we get to this kind of old desexual place which also deletes any possibility of sex between generations yeah. you, know, you are totally in mentor mode even if you're Henry or you're in check writing mode yeah. you know yeah. and then there's no real connect there's no option for that connection either right the, i can't the, even the imagine it with the, the play yeah i can't even imagine it in the context of that romantic relationship that's so that's so true yeah, yeah. that's really interesting and your, your point about the fu- the way that happens progressively is actually really interesting and sort of crystallizes something for me because another thing that happens over the course of the play is that eric sort of loses sight of his community he falls under the sway of this mm. trump supporting billionaire and instead of working for his social justice entrepreneurial business which i still don't fully understand <laughs> what mechanics that is. Are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but he abandons this job in social justice to be whisked away to paris with Henry Wilcox and his his boss at that business, Jasper, who is the radical who challenged uh, Henry Wilcox, is really angry with him. And he says, you know, this is a crisis point and you are abandoning your community. And he consciously makes that choice in the same way that Henry himself sort of retreated away from the AIDS crisis by moving upstate mm. instead of staying in the city with his friends who were dying. And I feel like it's interesting that he's losing himself both communally and sexually and is sort of cut off from every aspect of gay identity by that point in the play. And then I guess at the end, we're meant to feel that he's come back to it. But I don't know that he actually fully does uh, find himself again. Well, he's come back to finding himself among ghosts, right? Right. Which presumably you can't have sex with. Um, <laughs> but but uh, actually, part three of this play. <laughs> part three, no, but I, I mean, I'm joking. But I, I, the ghost, the idea that he ends up in this house full of literal ghosts, because mm. this is this is the part of the end of uh, part one that we talked about where all of these, these men sort of appear. Um, they're meant to be sort of in the house. I wondered if we could like think a little bit about what ghosts are doing here. You know, ghosts in fiction usually have some sort of motivation, like unfinished business or like a warning to offer. And, you know, the the having of the ghosts is, like, theatrically effective and sort of moving. But when I started reflecting on it more, I don't really understand what they want or why they're there, what we're supposed to – how are we, what are we supposed to do with them? Are we just supposed to be sort of as as sort of living gay people? Um, there's a line in the, in the at the end in that monologue from the mother, like, a necessary haunting. Why is it necessary? What like what do we make of the ghosts? Because I feel like that is so key, but I don't know that the play totally knows why they're there. Um, I mean, the, the there are other parts of the play too that depict haunting as something that that is plainly bad. I mean, Toby's character is is depicted at the very end of the show, but throughout the show is being haunted by his past and haunted by his experience of being traumatized as a young kid. And there's this attempt by throughout the play of trying to give Toby his stuff back that he's, he's left this box right. of the oh, house yeah. he's been, that he's left. And that sort of the memories of his youth are trying to follow him around. He's trying to outrun them. And then at the end of the play, when he finally does confront sort of his traumatic experience growing up, he can't handle it and then kills himself. And a lot of, there's one way of looking at the play that the, 
that the inheritance or the haunting is what traumatizes us, that it's that the specter of the past that makes Henry so callous towards his community mm-hmm. and and that makes Toby so um, unstable near the end of the show. And it doesn't, it, it is trying to say that we have ghosts and then vacillates well between saying these ghosts are, I guess, keep us grounded or keep us connected to our community and that ghosts completely isolate us. And I think the play is trying to tr- sort of answer this question of how should you relate to what you're haunted by? Do you mm. sort of make mm-hmm. space for them or do you chase them away? But that again feels like trying to read some comment on trauma into this play that just isn't there, that you just see the characters, some characters being punished by it and some characters being sanctified, but there isn't really any exposition or, or character action that explains what the ones who are sanctified are doing that is meaningfully different from what Toby is yes. doing. That it's just, these things just happen to them. And for the most part, they aren't, choosing to engage in any meaningful way with the ghosts. Mm. And I, I mean, I think the people, the play rewards for the most part are the ones who are able to reconcile with that past, whether it is their own past or the sort of communal history that we have. You know, um, Henry is unwilling to engage with this entire period of his life and that makes him impossible to connect with as a person and unwilling to sort of engage with his community in the present. But uh, Eric has his big, slightly stilted monologue about the importance of passing these stories down, which, while I didn't love the monologue, I do agree with the sentiment mm-hmm. that we, we do need to sort of uh, heed this and pass it down to the people who come after us. And I don't know, like, one of the other ghosts that we see in the play is Forster himself. Mm-hmm. And I think we should talk about him a bit at some point but you know one of the lines from howard's end is about the obvious dead the intangible alive and no connection at all between them and that's seen as something that needs to be set right so i wonder whether that is as you say sort of the lesson of the play that we're supposed to be connecting with these ghosts and making peace with them in a way that toby's unable to do and henry's unable to do but eric we're meant to think does succeed in achieving but I think it's very hard when the ghosts are so not particularized. Mm-hmm. The end of uh, I was really angry at the end of part one because there was this amazing stage gimmick that we won't entirely give away, but that is essentially uh, you know ghosts assembling. Mm-hmm. And my first thought, and I've a couple other people have mentioned this as well, is that it's a complete reiteration of the ending of the movie Longtime Companion right. by Craig Lucas, which was the first great story of AIDS and HIV in New York and beyond. And the end of that. Uh, uh, movie is this utterly is a scene that's incredi- an incredible scene of reunion between the dead and the living and the dead in that are particularized we've seen these people die mm, yeah. and here is this amazing reunion in a natural place um, that is so heartbreaking because it's so impossible mm. but it's with particular characters and in this play the stories, the things that we're actually supposed to remember, we never really hear. These folks never have faces. The, yeah. the, the figures are never even credited in the program. They're, you know, they're guys who are making you know, $60 a performance or right. something for <laughs> right. this one scene. And so it didn't seem to be truly engaged um, with the actual issues and instead gave into kind of a theatricality mm. that to me felt empty around some of these issues of haunting or some of the other more specific hauntings, um, again, or not follow through on Toby's, you know, uh, crisis is entirely off stage except for that box right, you know, that, right. get, that trails him like, you know, ball and chain, you know, through the play. And the symptom of not confronting memory or not confronting trauma in the play is primarily 
sex. The, the the punishment you get is that you have meaningless sex. So Henry um, is hooking up with uh, with Leo, who's a hustler, and uh, Toby is going to Fire Island. And mm-hmm. uh, while meanwhile, Eric, the character that's dealing with his trauma, is opening this like Jesus like house for for ghosts. And so if it, I do agree that if it, the closest the show gets to saying something about it is that running away is destructive, confronting it is good. But the way it shows that is running away is the reason that gay men have sex at places like fire island or the mm-hmm. reason that gay men party which again feels like really early 2000s if not late 90s and i don't <laughs> yeah. know it's sort yes. of what else it says sex about police. it beyond yeah. um gay men are just like essentially just traumatized kids acting out uh in mm-hmm. response to trauma from their youth not all older gay men have a house in the country full of ghosts to bequeath <laughs> to the younger generations but i do wonder um if we have thoughts about what older gay men should be uh, passing down uh, to the younger generations. And maybe, David, you want to think about that first. But, um, yeah, I mean, what what is the inheritance you would like to see um, older folks leaving for, for the younger folks? Oh, um, well, to me, the great issue um, that I think all queer people have is – that since we do not immediately default to procreation mm-hmm. as a means of, of creating meaning, we have that option now more than we ever did, but we don't. It's not like, you know, oh, I've had kids, therefore I have repopulated the world. What do we have instead of that? What kind of uh, creativity? So I come down, and I've thought a lot about this over the years, of how we invent that. Um, and to me, the word that I keep coming back to is generativity. Mm. What is it that can we generate, you know, that has some creative value, that has some some real transformative possibilities so that the world is indeed changed and we provide, as Tony Kushner puts it in the very last words of Angels in America, more life. Mm. Um, so I think that happens partly through just keeping telling stories and things like that um, and also through creating some kind of of sense of mentorship, which should never be finger shaking or <laughs> you kids today, you kids get off my lawn. I have a poem with that title um, <laughs> that I've you know been working on for a long time. Um, but some sense of just modeling behaviors that mm-hmm. are going to change over time too. I mean, being a gay man now or a queer person in general is not what it was in 1981 or 2001. So being able to recognize one's own ultimate anachronism, mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> is useful, um, even as you want to just kind of be there and do things that ideally create more love in the world. Yeah. We're coming up on, I think, having about enough time. So, but you want to talk about Forrester, maybe? I mean, we don't we, have to. If if other people well, are not as, I thought uh, that character was really uh, maybe the best. Yeah. So I think we can if we if we'd like to. Yeah. Yeah, I I found the handling of Forrester as a character unto himself really interesting, actually, and part of that play, sort of played into the sexual conservatism in a way that I think was maybe unfair to him, that he was sort of <laughs> uncomfortable with the idea of gay sex on stage. Right. But I think that was sort of a product of, you know, he's got these early 20th century mores that he's then imposing on 2019 and sort of realizes eventually that that's not going to uh, gel. But I I thought it was interesting in terms of the conversation around sort of what it might have meant to have a book like Morris come out earlier or whether he has things to say to this generation of gay men that is still meaningful and still relevant, which I think he does, but I, I'd be curious to hear if other people have a relationship to Morris or Howard's End or what, what they made of him as a a figure in the play. Mm. 
Howard's End was is remote from me, um, and I kept kind of chafing at some of the one-to-one correspondences mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I remembered from it. And it seems so – that book is so connected with class and place that some of the overlays didn't really work that well. And Morris is a really bad book. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it's a piece of, of early, elegant, uh, queer agitprop. Mm, and mm. I think it needs to be kind of taken in that context. We tend to glorify some of these works because of what we want them to mean. Mm. And a happy ending certainly you know, made a huge difference for that. Yeah. And I think that's also what we're doing with the inheritance in general. Mm. What struck me so much was um, that so many people were seeing the play that they wanted to see. Mm. Um, not the play that was actually being enacted on stage. To me, that was half the tears uh, of older go- goer, theater goers and younger ones that, is that they, they needed this play to be there, so therefore they made it what it was and brought their own needs to it in a way that, that was separate from the, uh, from the agenda of the play and the enactment of it as well. And I respected that and felt sad in some ways that, that something like this was not – it was filled with so much evanescent sentiment mm, when mm. we deserve, I think, still a story that has more power and complexity to it. Well, I think that is enough talk about The Inheritance uh, for today. If any of our listeners uh, happen to go see it in New York, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Outward Podcast at Slate.com is where you can find us. Thank you all for coming. This wonderful panel has been fantastic. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Thank you. That's yeah. great. Thank you to our producer, Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds with our regular episode on January 22nd. Happy New Year. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 